From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, are keyboards going to change the way we send money on mobile phones? Why does Amazon Cash exist? Who's it for? And Whoppercoin rears its ugly head once again. Hopefully we're done with this now. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11F office. Ah. <laughs> Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, Jason Bates. Say hi. Hey. David Breer, say hi. Hello. And our guests today are both journalists, so look out, people. First up, we have the legend, the Forbes columnist, the economist contributor, the founder of Mob76, Monty Mumford. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right, mate. And, of course, returning, we have the wonderful Business Insider Senior Research Analyst, Sarah Kachansky. How are you? I am well, thank you. It's great to have you here. Let's get on with the news. Great. So first story up, uh, there's one here in a publication called MoneyWeb. It says, cultural misfits, slow fintech collaboration. This is something, uh, David, Sarah, you've had a look at this? Yeah, it's kind of like one of my one of my areas of extreme interest here. So it's about the idea that cultural differences between fintechs and incumbents are basically hindering their ability to work together. So they kind of have both gotten to the idea that they need to, you know, collaborate to get anything done, but they've actually kind of failing to overcome the biggest hurdle there, which is they have very different cultures. Um, so this particular article, I think it's from a South African publication, by the way, is is why I think ah. we may have not heard of it ourselves is that it kind of touches on the two schools of thought there are, which is if you want fintechs and incumbents to work together, you either have to kind of inculate a culture of collaboration all the way through both businesses, or the other option is to take a little unit from the incumbent and sit them in a building somewhere else, probably somewhere trendy with a ping pong table with a fintech if you want to get things done. Um, was there any irony there that we can literally see a ping pong table from where we're sitting right now, Sarah? Or is no, no irony. No, no. I no? mean, okay. I believe that ping pong tables are integral to cultural change. And I have a report on the subject. Nice. If you want to read it. Will do. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that this is, this is actually a really common topic now. We've kind of moved on from the idea of, you know, it's fintechs versus uh, legacy players. And it's now very much a need to work together. But this cultural problem is coming up left, right and center. We, we've talked about it on, on the show before. How do you how do you get over it? Like, how do you find a way around it? I, I think... I I think this is the problem, isn't it? I think all of the other sort of technological stuff is is kind of surmountable, but the the cultural barrier just kind of keeps coming back. And it's it's that idea of the gorilla having a butterfly moment here. You know, like you can kind of attract in the butterflies as much as you want, but that gorilla is going to smash that shit up as soon as it gets <laughs> hold of it. So my my worry on on a lot of this stuff though is it kind of comes back to was it Santander's their collaboration is key thing? I think they had a snazzier title for Fintech it. Fintech 2.0, yes. the white paper with Oliver Wyman from uh, about yeah. 18 months ago. That's yeah. the one. You know, where the whole thing was about collaboration. But if banks can't learn to play nicely with smaller companies and actually be able to uh, foster an environment where that works and have to resort just to, you know, throwing money out of them and trying not to get in their way, then, uh, you know, that's a that's a hard thing to kind of break through, isn't it? But there's almost like a, a baby in a bathwater thing here because the cultural differences are positive and negative. On one hand, large financial services organization, millions and millions of customers, you know, grannies, pensions, people's savings, day-to-day living. Like, you can't mess around with that. You can't sort of iterate super fast and have it break. And equally, KYC, AML, funding terrorist organizations, there's a whole set of things that actually having that uh, sort of traditional mindset of a utility and making it work is utterly positive. On the other hand, you've also got the politics and the game playing and the internal metrics and the, the mindset of, of a traditional button down bank and how that works. And for me, it's interesting as to how you can tease those apart because there are some things about big banking culture that you obviously want to keep where there are other parts that actually prevent them from from moving forward. I think it's kind of a give and take as well. I think that it's not all on the bank side. I think the fintechs have to understand. I think there has to be a thing here. So maybe the banks or whoever, insurers, wealth managers have to learn that there are some areas they 
they can take risks. Because that kind of idea that you've just said, you know, you can't take a risk with granny's pension. Absolutely. Nobody's saying you should. But on the other hand, in your innovation arm, why don't you let somebody have a bash at something if it doesn't work? And at the same time, the fintechs need to accept that, yeah, you can't mess with granny's pension. You can't just move fast and break everything because then everything's broken. I, and I think that's kind of been the key is every bank has had this innovation team but there's questions about is it just for pr or are that you're getting results because the results seem to be in the types of companies that have either done digital well so you look at your uh your barclays you look at bbva you look at something there the people that have kind of embraced digital and done it quite well then you look at uh the vc arm and they've done vc stuff kind of well but the two don't meet in the middle like that integration of those small companies with the mainstream product just hasn't happened and it's the people that sit in between that that becomes really key i i wonder whether that matters right whether whether that matters for the customer i was on a train today with two kind of private school girls probably 17 18 going to france talking about harry or some boy or whatever what should i say and then in their conversation was that that prince harry no no just (laughs) i think the other girl actually liked him more than the girl that was (laughs) she was saying whatever Um, and then they kind of like blithely started talking about starling and monzo you know what i mean just like it's a thing for them you know it's like for me changing to a challenger bank is quite a big deal but they were just talking about it it's like if you got that i didn't know they were doing that i didn't they know what's going on so they don't really care if there's a digital transformation thing going on with misfits or whatever you describe it as it's about the customer right and if the customer is like 17 and now realize that a challenger bank is as normal to them as whatsapp i'm not sure that it matters whether there's a misfit between i've I've met well i've met all of the four banks in the last i don't know in the last three or four months and there are different kind of skill sets digitally of those people, one of which was appalling. It was like talking to a swamp monster <laughs> in their intelligence of what was going on. You know what I mean? So I, I just wonder whether it really matters. Because- I, I think that's a great point. It's like ultimately the customer doesn't really care. You know, it's it's the their problem to fix it. And uh, I think the thing is the banks are procuring a service from the fintechs here because the, the fintechs in question that we're talking about are usually ones that are challenging the traditional suppliers. So to a certain degree either the banks can have it in the way that the fintechs can deliver it to them or it's going to take three times as long and three times as much budget but ultimately the customer doesn't care they just don't see the service being delivered to them right? and on that point they're wanting to provide services to exactly those people that you talked about on the train the big banks do want to supply stuff to them but in doing so they're trying to partner with these smaller companies and that's where the friction's coming up and in that partnership that cultural mismatch of small company versus big company seems to be holding them back every time but then it, it almost becomes you're looking for that that best of both worlds. You're looking to manage risk, to innovate at the same time. I, th- I think the pharmaceutical industry is really interesting as a place where you've got to keep innovating, but people's lives are on the line. And in some way, that sort of clinical trials model, the kind of step-by-step, you know, uh, making sure that you're pushing forward while at the same time constraining the risk to some level is great. I mean, and that's something like we do 11FS, you know, on the consulting side pushing through that with clients uh it's a very different model from a let's build something over three years and launch it to the mass market versus let's try it with 10 100 1000 clients and and scale it up speaking of different models the next story is from the south china morning post which interestingly is owned by uh alibaba group um submitted to uh fintechinsidernews.com by very own fagan uh fagan thank you for submitting all these stories the title here is Big banks strike partnerships with technology companies as part of a fintech wave. And the types of technology companies they're talking about are your uh, Alibaba's, your JD.com's. This is your major retailers uh, doing major things. Uh, But it's the big banks as well. So so far, all five big banks accounting for more than one third of China's banking assets have allied with those technology giants. This would be like, uh, I don't know, uh, Amazon and eBay getting together with the big four banks 
banks in the UK or Australia or like or, or in the US, it, it, getting that kind of partnership is is almost unheard of. What do we think of this? Is this just China being completely different, innovative? This was really interesting to me. So this is this is my job. I should know what they're doing. Um, and I went away and looked into this, and I had no idea how much of. So we talk about the Alibabas and we talk about Ant Financial and Alipay and how huge it is and how the US uh, giants should be looking at that model as well. I had no idea how much of this stuff comes from their banking partners. So, you know, it kind of it's not it's not public it's out there. It's almost certainly in my opinion a regulatory move because the China is not fond of the big tech guys. It wants to keep them kind of in line. It wants the innovation, it wants the revenue, but it doesn't want them doing their own thing over there. Yeah, the government's hand is there behind all of this and it yeah. absolutely everybody involved has the blessing in order to have proceeded. But that's a really interesting point there is that people talk about how much fintech these guys are doing really really well. It's the biggest fintech market in the world by an order of magnitude but actually behind the scenes it's the banks yeah and it's really fascinating the one that caught my eye was the um the the kind of the the jd uh jd.com or whatever it is and that and the debit card and um, it's brilliant so you have a you have a card um the minute you get more than a thousand i think it's one or dollars into your savings account it instantly transfers from the bank's product to jd's um investing product so it's really talking about cultural meshing that's Perfect. So you've got the security of the bank with the payment industry in the account, and then you've got the JDs um, investing on, you know, over here doing clever things. So going back to Monty's point earlier about the two people on the train discussing Starling and Monzo, can you imagine them dealing with a brand like Amazon or somebody else that where the money just flipped for them and it started saving for them? Would I that be something? I, I don't think they'd care. Yeah. As long as it was easy. If if you look at kind of chat networks and whoever's winning at the moment whether it's whatsapp or whatever that kind of like generation will just slip to the next one as quickly as possible so we're talking about china and and i think you said the biggest fintech market in the world is is, is that a general kind of by investment yeah. and by yeah. customers yeah. then you look at like wechat yeah exactly and what they're doing with their cryptocurrencies and how they're I don't know, what's the thing in China with the red pres- oh, the the red envelopes, red envelopes yeah. kind of like event based kind of stuff like that that changes the way that people use mobile um, they sound to me a little bit late to the party you know WeChat's doing amazing things WeChat has been doing this for some years through Tencent and Tencent another massive technology absolutely but you've got Alipay on one side and Tencent and WeChat on the other side but what I think here is is again that trend of China is definitely showing some business models that the Western world hasn't adopted and is really moving light years ahead they they, do not, not remember Amazon and Wells Fargo's partnership though they tried so Amazon tried to offer student loans through, from Wells Fargo. Oh, and in fact, it did for approximately 30 seconds until it fell foul of all sorts of rules and regulations and they had to stop it. So this has been tried. So it's not, I don't think that... But, but is that not very... So that's a very product approach to delivering those things isn't there whereas actually when you look at what alipay does there's a whole wrapper around a service there that actually becomes a you know a compelling proposition yeah. so, so it's amazon's technology so you're going on there and amazon's offering you a loan because by the way you've bought student prime for half the price that they charge real adults or whatever it is um i'm sure mature students get it actually by the way I mean, never actually tried um and then you know the, the loan is provided by wells fargo but it's got an amazon front on it yeah. so it kind of it feels the same in that when you're a student getting the loan you don't know that it's you know it's Wells Fargo because you really want to see the name at the bottom and know it's not Amazon. But on the other hand, it's Amazon's user experience. I don't know. I still, I'd be more likely to get a loan from Amazon than I would Wells Fargo, wouldn't you? It, like, I well, kind right of- now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it's also part of a larger trend, even outside China, of banks and financial institutions realizing that they have to reach out and, and start partnering and working with alliances. Because in the end, these end-to-end journeys that what that what customers really care about are provided by a variety of players on a particular platform and that whether it's buying a house or buying some buying a holiday or your weekly shopping this whole connection of delivery services financial services retailers manufacturers is really becoming a meshed in this sort of api platform world well that's that's the big argument isn't it who who, who which interface is going to win like those those girls who love monzo is it because they love monzo so much they're never going to look at anything else and monzo is going to be their provider because as you say you know in in china you go to alipay or tencent and you get your insurance and your asset management product and you buy 
uh, a new pair of shoes and you buy a house all from the same because that's your provider because that's that's who you go to so is that going to happen in the western world well not? they're probably trying to lock those girls in right you know mm, yeah. and they probably have got no chance for a couple of years but but just so that kind of banks are out of step have you seen that advert with the kid that loses his kind of card after he cops off with a girl oh yeah yeah it's Man, what? I, I kept looking that? at that thinking that he had like five or six opportunities right, to do something like, differently. Like, you've got just, your phone on you, call I've not your missus. I'm not sure I want to see this. So, so, for the people who haven't seen that advert, this is about a guy who's trying to get home and he keeps trying to go to a cash machine. Then he realizes he hasn't got his card and all kind of mishaps happened. And then, of course, the bank provide him with an ability to go to a cash machine with a code and draw out some cash. As he's skipping on. Is this RBS? No. Is that yeah. the get cash yeah, feature? That, all right. Which, okay. which is a neat little product. Nothing, mm. nothing against the product particularly, but yeah, it's t- that's the. Advert. I mean, why wouldn't you just ring somebody to come and get you? Yeah, or or use an Uber like, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. get home. But get, get cash is a great thing, though. Like, I think that as a service, maybe this is, start, this is This is starting to sound like some sort of weird sort of like director's commentary DVD right now. But, uh, <laughs> sorry, about now? no, no, but I agree with you. It's actually quite a good product because but because the ad is so rubbish. You kind of don't even think of to get cash. I saw an ad last night for, I was in the pub or whatever and watching it in the background. It was about a storytelling stream of this guy that just got out of prison. He was working really hard. He'd gone to the cobbler. You know, the cobbler was going to give him a job. It was all like amazing. And then on the day that he's kind of going for the job, he can't get out of bed. So then it goes to the cobbler and he's going Jesus I shouldn't give him a chance you know? <laughs> and then the guy's in bed this so, sounds like a film no, it, it, this it, is a- it's like really good you know and then at the end the guy can't get out of bed and then the kind of thing is like what is this for arthritis national problem awesome right really awesome impactful makes a point really and it's very rare nowadays for an ad to do that to you you know so it's out there. The talent is out there for the banks to have a, an advert like that. You know, as you said, whatever that product is, it's it's fine. But it's just branded so. <coughs> but it's so so often retrofitted. Absolutely. You know, you find a a technology and you've got chatbots. Great, let's everyone do a chatbot. Oh, okay, we've delivered it. Now we need an ad. Ad agency, come up with an ad for a chatbot rather than. <laughs> you know, I'm just imagining like, what that might yeah. look like. Oh yeah, here's the concept. Okay, you know, somebody <laughs> can't get home bed, and they need yeah, cash. Exactly. And so it's like, Shoreditch. Now, I, I'm just surprised whilst that was being pitched nobody went but what about using his phone to call somebody or to get an Uber or anything like that I wonder if it's being pitched well, by I, somebody I who never and apologies to anybody who hasn't seen any of these adverts <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna move us to the next story um in fintech Asia we've got a story submitted here to fintechinsidernews.com by Joe I'm not going to try and butcher your last name of uh, lattice 80 so the world's largest fintech hub expands to London apparently what's going on here yeah this is really interesting so um lattice 80 are huge huge uh huge huge hub out in singapore which is you know becoming incredibly widely known for its um it's it's a fintech scene basically it's, it's got all the like things in place it's got brilliant regulator it's got a load of money it's got investors it's got talent all that stuff um and this this fintech hub is going global and doing it fast so they've got a huge number of partnerships just last week they were working with the japanese uh incubator and apparently they're coming to london and apparently they're registered here as a business, but they need office space, which I wouldn't have thought was a huge problem. But I think it kind of indicates the scale they want to come in at. They want to come in and they want to come big. Um, it's really interesting on a, on a couple of levels. One is that I don't think London, for all its fintech success, has this kind of thing. You know, there's not one hub, one accelerator, one area you go to if you're a fintech and you want office space and support and you know, um, investment. The other idea is this links that are growing between the UK and Asia and how fintechs in the UK, instead of maybe looking previously at the US or even Europe, I've kind of maybe taken that Brexit thing on board. Where else can we go? Where else can we find users? Asia's got loads of users. And Singapore, UK makes perfect sense when you think about what Singaporean law and regulation is based on. It's based on British law. So, the regulators are buddies. The law is pretty similar. A lot of people in Singapore speak English as a business language. So it actually seems like a really good idea to me. And I'm so impressed that Joe, who submitted this to Fintech Insider News, is the CEO of Lattice 80. Oh, no. Why oh, didn't yes. you tell me that before I started <laughs> you talking? Where he <laughs> So, Joe, hey, thanks for submitting your own story. <laughs> I think it's um, a great idea. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we met, uh, I met Joe in uh oslo 
where he was talking at an NFI event, which was the sort of Nordic region financial uh, area. And they were striking partnerships over there as well. So this was really, really was sort of taking something massive in Singapore and reaching out to particular regions and fintech hubs and accelerators in order to get that global scale, which is, yeah, which is amazing. But you're right, Brexit. Yeah, I mean, and the network, the networks, I think, is a, a, to build on on Nadia's point as well, that the Brexit point drives home the need for a network, the need for, if you're a small company and you're offering something specific, you really need a lot of users, whether they're businesses, whether they're consumers, whether they're banks, whatever it is. And the way to do that is to build on somebody else's connections a lot of the time. It's the old old VC way of doing well, which things. Which is right? almost a consistent part of those last two stories. It's no longer stick with your own geography in your own business. It's actually a team game. You know, you've got to reach out. You've got to be in, in other places with other incubators, with other businesses, coming together to deliver something amazing for customers, not only in one jurisdiction, but but more globally. You know, you look at how in 26 and now with suddenly so many countries where traditionally for that kind of expansion of, of any kind of financial services organisation would take years. You'd you'd focus on one territory before you go anywhere else. It's interesting that in the US that seems to be harder to do because there you have to go state by state by state and then there's so many federal re- regulators and so many layers that you have to go through. Singapore, by contrast, is a city-state and uh, it's, it's considered easy to do business there for the simple fact that you can probably meet most of the people in the regulator in an afternoon and meet most of the people you need to very, very quickly. However, it's a small market, but it's a small market that happens to be in the middle of the growth region of the world, which is Southeast Asia. So it, it you can see why it's it's doing what it's doing. Is this slightly at odds with what most of the banks are doing, though? So most of the banks are actually shrinking back most of their international banking setup and actually moving to be, particularly in the UK, you know, most of the, the banks have kind of come to either just be UK-based or you've got big global ones as well, whereas fintech seemingly fixes the same sort of needs everywhere, right? But I think there's two ideas there. One is that a lot of the fintechs are doing one thing. So banks are trying to do everything and they, they're not pulling back everything from everywhere. But say you're, I don't know, X big bank, you're going to keep investment in Asia and you're going to pull back retail and keep retail in your home market, which happens to be Germany. I don't know if that's the case. The other thing is it's very easy for you as a fintech to launch a product for loans in Germany where people like loans and a credit card in France because people prefer credit cards. It's, well, not easy. It's easier than some of those big guys to do that. Uh, so next story is one in Finextra, David, called uh, OCBC Keyboard, which is just a fun word. So I guess this is one of those keyboards inside an app. Let's customers make person-to-person payments without leaving messaging apps. Uh, this is submitted to Fintech Insider News by Nigel Walsh. Nigel, thank you for submitting that. Yeah, this is sort of continuing the uh, Singaporean theme, I guess. So this is OCBC sort of foray into custom keyboards. We've, we've seen a couple of these now. What's OCBC? Is it a- so OCBC is, is the bank. Um, and what they have done, so I don't know if anybody's seen something like PayKey before, but this is essentially a custom keyboard that sits within your mobile device, which allows you to uh, instigate a payment on one tap. So rather than having your sort of emoji button down there in the left-hand side of your of your keyboard, then it allows you to press this button to initiate a payment in any app that you're in. So if you're in Facebook or if you're in WeChat or if you're in whatever you want to be in, you can literally just press that money, type the uh, the amount that you want to and send it to somebody else but, but famously westpac uh, who impl- who one of the first implementers of this keyboard which you have to say is a great user journey i mean the ability to rather than send a smiley poo to actually start sending some some cash to someone can, from wherever can you I do are both? so that will be, be oh, like you definitely so. can. Well, you okay. can do it with monzo can't you you can add a little emoji to the what you're sending so you i'm sure i'm sure you can but the, the problem was westpac sort of sent this sent this out implemented this and apple said uh no like there's no keyboards are used for a very specific thing and you're you're taking the piss and that here. isn't it yeah so uh, so they had to back out from this so i think the thing that's interesting in this case is that they're aimed at or they've they've released an android keyboard so uh you know not that curated i'm going to take 30 percent of everything you do apple view but actually more of a wild west pixel simon taylor view (laughs) i I like myself some android but yeah so for for some time you've been able to download these apps that change your keyboard and i kind of get this but at the same time i can see at some point a similar thing coming along where well now i've still got the same network effects issues like if i've got this keyboard app 
that I'm using on my phone, it's great that I can press my button and send it to you and send you a message in WhatsApp. And you get a message in WhatsApp saying, hey, to receive this money, go here. But I hate that user experience. There is a well-known similar payments, person-to-person payments um, technology, which does exactly that. So the other person like, gets an SMS that says to retrieve your money, go here and set this up. Well, the and then go, through a load of, then go through a load of sign-up. So, so, like, I get the idea, but these keyboards, if they're in the Apple ecosystem, have been banned, as you say, Jason. If they're in the Android keyboard uh, world, they've still got that user experience problem, whichever way you go. David, how much, what's the limit that you can send? I don't think there was a limit on this one when I was looking through what they, they were saying. I know in, in other instances they've, they've capped it similar to like contactless fees. So almost like 40 quid seemed to be like a cap where they were going. But Other important question is, is it only OCBC to OCBC? Or is it kind of like if I'm on OCBC and you're on DBS, I can send you money like that would be interesting because it's all well and and otherwise then it's playing that game that some of those neobanks are doing that oh well if you get your buddies on it then life's easier yeah you could see see how it would work in one of those territories where i don't like sweden where swish has 80 percent of the market or like it would be nice to have the android keyboard that would then allow that payment because actually 80% of the market already is doing that in some way or other. So I don't know, it strikes me as a really interesting, like well-defined sort of use case app or or way of using a keyboard. But is it enough to push a particular P2P player or a particular bank? Or is it just more useful where there's a dominant, you know, player? Is the inference here that it's easier to do on Android than Apple? Android won't prevent you from doing it, right. where Apple will. You can do it using you, do it. you can use it doing Siri and iMessage, but you can't have the keyboard. So it's the I, compromise I, there. I, I think that's going to be the thing. I think like, do people trust this stuff? If you download it, like as the Android user in the room, Simon, um, do, when you download something from the Play Store, is that what it's called? <laughs> I don't know. You, you're you're actually looking down on him at this yeah. point. <laughs> What's amazing about downloading things from Google is they actually tell you all the privacy they're taking away from you. Unlike Apple, who sort of got with that quite recently. But anyway, that aside, uh, <laughs> that aside, moving uh, on. Uh, that aside, I, I don't know if it'll get adopted. That's my real question here. So I'm going to move us to the next story. Uh, next one we have Jason here is in a, a publication called Banking Innovation. This was submitted again to uh, Fintech Insider News by Fagan. Fagan is a prolific story submitter. Um, this one, I like the headline. Apple Pay have been overpowered by Tencent WeChat Pay. So Apple couldn't come in riding into China and, and do their Apple Pay thing. This just plays to all your biases, doesn't it, Simon? It's like suddenly it's like Apple getting a kicking. So, yeah, a- Apple- richly deserved. <laughs> so, Apple's now allowing Chinese customers to use WeChat for purchases in the App Store, uh, which is super interesting because you don't see Apple back down on, you know, on anything. Um, Digging into it and looking at a couple of different stories, apparently the Apple App Store uh, pulled in more revenue in China, $2.2 billion, than any other market um, last year, according to uh, App Annie, the mobile analytics store. And so WeChat has become that all-purpose you know, smartphone utility, a billion active users. Apple's making ridiculous amounts of money in that market. Apple Pay came out there in 2016, hasn't really made a dent at all. And so you've you've got this setup where do you go for the money and do you want really being paid in the app store or do you you know prevent that and try and push users? They've given up. Well, well, apparently there's also been this recent sparring with Tencent, who you know behind WeChat over purchases in the app store because uh, WeChat had to, was forced to disable a, a tip functionality uh, to comply with app store rules. Wow! So there's a bit of kind of toing and froing here of the giants. You know, there's a bit of giant sparring going on in tech uh, giants in Asia. are sparring in the war for the future of how people pay. <laughs> I like that a lot. There's there's definitely yeah there's politics going on there. You can really see and you can imagine monty was saying earlier that people are all using their chat applications the easiest possible way of doing things but in the background these tech giants are trying to be that in that position and in china we've seen the banks kind of realize that and support that future and just become suppliers to it we haven't really seen that in the us or europe and like sarah mentioned we saw them try but they haven't succeed so so maybe it starts to happen in the future who knows Alrighty, um, so I'd now like to hear from our sponsors. 
The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by SmartDX, a smart communication solution. The days of managing capital markets documentation using Word docs and emails are over when you use SmartDX in its innovative, collaborative negotiation environment, built by the industry for the industry. SmartDX simplifies drafting, negotiation, and execution of all capital markets documentation for all asset classes and product types while giving you transparency, control, and digital data that can be extracted at any point in the process. Learn more at www.smartcommunications.com backslash SmartDX. Cool. Thank you very much to our sponsors. And if you like any of the stories that you've heard so far, or you want to hear different stories, be sure to te- check out fintechinsidernews.com or follow us at fintechinsiders on Twitter. That's at fintechinsiders. All right, Sarah, next story. There's one here in The Verge submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Bob McLean. And this one is titled Amazon Cash Comes to the UK but under a different name, Stealthy. I know it's called Amazon Top Up, which doesn't feel particularly. They could have gone. They could have gone bigger and bolder. Yeah, there, I feel it's not. It's not um, very sort of stealthy, really. Yeah, it's still got I know. Amazon there, isn't it? It, it? it doesn't just. You know, it's not like called Cat Money or something. I don't know. Amazon so explain Ninja. the explain uh, yes. the product. So the concept um, is the that basically people who don't necessarily have a credit card or a bank account can top up an Amazon account using mobile phone um, app and cash. So basically, what happens is you you go onto Amazon, you get a barcode, you take it into a shop that supports it um in the uk it's anywhere that uh uses PayPoint, which is mostly used by people who don't also have bank accounts and therefore can't have direct debits who pay their bills um so you take this app in you scan the barcode and then you hand over x amount of cash um and the cash appears on your amazon account and then you can go away and you can shop online on amazon which for people who are underbanked or not financially included but want to buy e-commerce makes complete sense there are a lot of people locked out of e-commerce because they don't have a bank account and you know who also really likes it people who don't trust linking their credit cards and bank accounts to amazon so yeah, the cyber conscious yeah, or people, people who don't pay tax on their cash in hand earnings <laughs> well that, that too yeah <laughs> i wasn't going to go there but you know well but um, isn't it isn't it i mean you know on one hand you've got between 750,000 and a million people who don't have a bank account or say they don't want one. So on one hand, yes. In the UK. In the UK. So if people want to buy things on Amazon, you need some kind of electronic payment thing to be able to take your, you know, 10 or 20 pounds to the news agent, load it onto your app and then to buy something. That's great. But that's actually a, that's a small market to, to you know, to launch something with. Uh, and, and those people who, who are, uh, who don't have a bank account are they going to really spend as much um at amazon in order to you know to do stuff in the first place i kind of i i'm i'm kind of on the other side of the fence here i think it's um i think it's really interesting because i think there are certainly in the uk and with not to get too heavy here but that with the way that things are there are a lot of people who have a lot less money all of a sudden and they are you know they're they're, they're struggling um, and a lot of people who are certainly living in, you know, under a certain line are paying their bills on a month by month, day by day, whatever basis. So they're using these services more than they have done previously. These services like PayPoint, I don't know the numbers, but are being used increasingly. Um, and yet they don't want to give up. In fact, the point is as well that Amazon's one of the cheapest way to buy things. So if you haven't got much money, and you need to buy stuff, why should you be excluded from the cheapest way to buy it? Just because you haven't got a bank account. Um, but that kind of ex- maybe explains the name Amazon Top Up, right? Because if you're skint and you can't get a kind of subscription for something, you just top up your phone. Mm. And that's kind of almost a certain amount of kind of fascism because it's more expensive to top up than it is to kind of subscribe or have a subscription with a mobile provider. So that maybe explains slightly patronising um, naming of that product. The idea that if you go to price point, 
which fortunately I haven't been to for many years. So what you're saying is that that's a kind of back way in to be in bank. So you go there and pay your electricity bill every month, as you said, and then that means that you can go via that channel to Amazon bypassing credit cards. Is that what you were saying? You can you can turn cash into something from Amazon. Yeah. So right. you, pay points. You, okay. you, pay, you can use cash to pay on Amazon. Okay. Which obviously would be difficult otherwise but um it's it's something that's actually been incredibly widely used in places like india where like underbank this is actually a, a serious problem which it generally isn't in the uk I, i'm still struggling to get this if i'm honest with you so like i'm not 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 having to go at you sarah and your articulation no, of it it, was great, do it but I, like all right, <laughs> all right. Sarah. okay <laughs> so but but like what is this solving then so this is this is literally to your point jason this is solving people who get paid in cash who don't have a bank account to buy stuff on Amazon. No, it's just giving Amazon more money. I, I'm all for that. I love, I love Amazon, but um, it's, it's not necessarily people who don't have a bank account. It's also people who don't have, you know, the right sort of bank account. It stops them going into the overdraft. If you've got people who are on very, very tight budgets, so I know people who get their wages. They go to their bank. They take all of that money out in cash yeah. because they do not have it. They cannot go into their overdraft. They have no credit card and they take it home and they put it in different envelopes. So this is my rent yeah. and my electricity and my groceries. So for those that's people, very common, yeah. that is not uncommon. So for those people to then be able to access Amazon is, you know. But how is this different than to just going and buying like a hundred pound gift card for Amazon for myself? It's not that different, but it's on your phone and it's a reusable car. It's a uh, reusable. And you've got to bear in mind, there's a lot of migrant workers who are send, using PayPoint at the moment to send money home as remittances. They're using it for a whole bunch of services who probably can't get a bank account, uh, but are being paid by a local bar or some some sort of um, somewhere in the grey economy. These are people that are doing real work that need to buy things from Amazon. But, uh, I think. There's but a, there's but a I'm not. There. I'm not sure. Like Amazon suddenly becomes like this human right. You know, I mean, like 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 if you've got those. Pro- problems like go get a money's account and then have a bank account where you can do stuff from not just buy amazon stuff because basically storing value in amazon unless it's shares in amazon is probably not the best place to be put ux versus ui um this is following where the people already are versus trying to get them to go down your really neat apple-like path (laughs) but where these people are every month is there's too much month left at the end of the money right They're, they're skint so around the 21st or 22nd of March or July or whatever, you have no money left and you're, you know, skinning yourself out. If Amazon are offering, I don't, I actually have no idea what the, this is. Amazon top up. I don't, I, what's it for? It, it does like, it's just, it just sounds like a way to make well, poor people to, it spend to me money like a on way Amazon. For poor people to put money into Amazon's it pocket. Seem it, yeah. It is, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing, the one thing that I will, I will say, you know, and I'll repeat is that Amazon is in a lot of instances cheaper than other places. So if you've got month left at the end of the money, why not buy your light bulbs? Why not buy your children's nappies in bulk from Amazon? Because it's a hell of a lot cheaper than Tesco. Like, I don't think they're buying, like, shoes. Or maybe they are. And if you've coming out as a check and then you've cashed that and you've cashed it at a payday loan, you may live in cash and you may need to, want, may want to buy from Amazon. I think that's entirely possible. Yeah. Amazon, the, the new Wonga. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I, yeah, maybe not. Uh, but Monty, no, there's a story not. here in TechCrunch. This was submitted mm. to FinTech Insider News by Andrew Earle. And this is about the banking giant SoftBank, who have poured $4.4 billion into WeWork, which is where we happen to be sitting right now. <laughs> they don't need uh, Amazon top-up, do they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is Amazon top-up for WeWork. I find the whole kind of like co-working space thing really interesting, right? Because basically this is like Regis office space or it's just a kind of sometimes sounds a little bit more just like a kind of sexy way of describing it. But I've been to uh, – I did a load of pieces from Mashable from Bogota to Moscow and all that stuff about co-working spaces in the place that we're in now. So we were arguing earlier about whether they should – get Hendrix gin earlier so it's, there is a bit of a first world problem thing here um, but I've been to iHub in Nairobi based on M-Pesa and, and that success and I've seen the most amazing African entrepreneurs in a very kind of human space uh, as much as I wrote a piece for Forbes a couple of weeks ago about fly spaces in the Philippines biggest ever raise of you know Philippine investors and all that stuff um, and there are all types of kind of acquisitions in that space uh, I think SoftBank are being very smart you know what I mean? I just, I, I think that the co-working space kind of idea, um, 
is now part of culture. It's it's just it just is you know it's the new normal if you're starting a small business Absolutely. and as we look around kind of our co-inhabitants we don't just see small tech companies we see people who are in fashion we see people mm. who are um, one uh, sole traders people yeah. who are doing it's just a place that you can call work. Uh, I live in Brighton and there's a, a company down there uh, well co-working space called Platform Nine, right. The guy's a really nice guy. He kind of got a few Brighton people together a couple of years ago. What should I do? We had a few drinks and all that stuff. And he's made this work really quickly, right? Like really quickly from nothing. Platform 9 was going to be a space at the back of the station that was being misused. As much as the tram shed in, in Bristol has been a really good example of, you know, people not so much feeling sexy, but just having that kind of human connection. And I'm not sure if it's like fashion brands or, or small companies, but there are a load of one person kind of companies that work from home and work from bed and take the dogs for a walk or whatever it is have massive freedom to do what they like but they miss humans right so you go to a co-working space within a minute most people are quite nice and you might have not so much a business conversation but you will have a nice conversation and uh, so i think that soft banks kind of move into that area was completely fine but we saw we worked for some time and been having financial troubles they bought a load of property their costs were increasing this could be really timely for their, but their market cap is huge Absolutely. they're investing ridiculous amounts i mean uh, i'm i'm with you i think i think this whole investment in infrastructure that supports small gig economy small you know the the workforce it aggregates all of that demand it's a super smart play we were talking to a a large private equity fund today that was really talking about investing in infrastructure that enables the future and i think in in a big way the fact that i can come here to it to a we work get a desk next month get an office next month get a floor then things go badly and move back to a desk with lots of people that that i can then connect with because they're in a similar spot answers an emotional need it answers a financial need it it really is something special absolutely i'll give it detroit as an example right so i saw that film you know the weekend it's a five-star kind of subject and a really bad two-star film or whatever and the whole thing about detroit you know kind of um halloween people used to set fire to houses and this idea that Detroit is ruined. I mean, it's pretty bad on the other side of Eight Mile. You'll get killed for five dollars, whatever. But in the middle of Detroit, opposite the Detroit Opera House, there was the Madison Theatre. Right, the Madison Theatre was an awesome Art Deco building. There was a guy, an entrepreneur, employed two thousand people, quickened loans. He was a Detroitian or a Detroiter or whatever. Realized what was going on in the city, and he realized with Detroit, they say that there's a kind of area the side of size of San Francisco that's destroyed but it's not in one area there's a building missing there's a building missing whatever so what he did is he went to the madison theater did it all up you know said made it a co-working space across five floors you know kind of perennial kind of beers on the roof on a friday and all that stuff and if you were successful with four or five people you had to leave the madison theater and then set up around you know so that created the madison block because there were all these people then Google moved in, then Twitter moved in, and then kind of people in Silicon Valley that couldn't afford the rent in California moved in. That's an awesome example of regenerating a city where now you can't even get a flat downtown in Detroit, but the kind of perception of Detroit is of a, a ruined city. No, it's a, it used to be the third biggest city in America and has gone through that regeneration because someone has done that in the middle of the city and made them leave and create the medicine book. There's something really nice about the idea that if small businesses are the engines of growth, if that's where the future uh, Facebooks and whatever else, whatever you want to build, or even just Flower Shop, what if that small business is the future of that community, then giving that the infrastructure and the support it needs, but yet we find small businesses constantly, they, they struggle to get lent to they're not being lent to we recognize this in in most of the world um why isn't supporting them more of a business model in financial services it's really well, strange it is becoming more of a business model i would say that small businesses are um i i'm writing a report on this as well just you know if anybody's interested um no small businesses have been underserved nobody denies that basically because no bank could make any money out of lending to them it just wasn't worth the effort um you know a number of large online lenders came along and were like you know what we're going to use technology and we're going to use technology like, you know, the basic stuff, cloud computing, APIs, and we're going to make it easy to lend to a small business and we're going to make some money off the back of it. The banks went, hey, you know what? 
that's quite a good idea. How do we do that? Um, so I think that the idea of, you know, bringing small businesses up, I would I put it out there and I'm probably going to be heckled for this, but I would say that banks aren't doing this at the kindness of their hearts. They don't want to regenerate broken cities. They want to find a way to make some more money. But if the way to make some more money is to lend to small businesses, who are then going to be their customers, who are going to thrive and grow and, and continue, then why not? Why not do that? And Well, part of the question, part of the problem is data. Because actually lending to a small business, you know, suddenly Jason Bates walks in off the street. I'm setting up a new business. Will you give me 50K? You know, it's a question of, well, mm, are we securing this against your house? Mm, no, no, I'm, I'm not into that. I just want the money. You know, uh, and <laughs> actually great. without we, we've data. We've had that conversation, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> without data about the business or my background or what I'm doing or what I'm about, that gets really difficult to, uh, to to push through. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's where you come back to this idea of platforms and you come back to the idea of those guys who aren't necessarily financial service providers, but the zeros of this world who have a load of data, for example, they're your accounting software, they know who you are, they know where you get money from, they know who you pay, they happen to know you pay a tax bill on time, and they know what your assets are for your business. So plug one, two, three in, and, and you know, all of a sudden it becomes viable. Can I take it back to Simon? Do you think that small business are the future I believe a lot of people have said that like this is what you hear from politicians I do believe that every big business starts as a small business and yeah maybe I I, th- I think I need to think about that question more I don't want to say it categorically yeah you sat on the fence really successfully there it was, <laughs> no, it was like, a good one <laughs> like do I believe it is a, is a very interesting question because do I believe it maybe I need to think about that more but you can certainly see a ton of evidence for why it is I, I, I think there's definitely something in that where where big banks are trying to pick the high growth businesses small businesses who are going to become the big businesses and while they're doing that some other organizations are going to come in and start serving those businesses better and actually providing to your point sarah like a full suite of what business banking should be because nobody in the market's really doing that people, and there are people who are definitely certainly in the uk nudging their noses into this space so. or, or hence soft bank by putting money into we work. Yeah, I think, oh. I think the, the thing. The oh, thing you see what he did there. We, we, we all work. Um, I think the the thing on on this though is I wonder how many big businesses are using something like we work because actually there's so many big businesses who used coming back to our sort of cultural point earlier on on what feels like hours ago now. Sorry, listeners. Um, was was about the fact that you know cultural osmosis of you know, smaller companies and agile working practices. You see lots of, and we, we do this at 11FS, you know, we'll go and use a, uh, you know, a 30 man office with, in WeWork to start a project, get it rolling in a, an environment that's sort of neutral because actually it's a, you know, a safe place to do that type of thing. How does a big business become a small business? How much does it cost to be at a place like WeWork in London? Uh, it very much varies depending on... This is starting to sound like some sort of advertorial for, for, for WeWork no, here. No, but, no, but I'm just, This is actually um, anti-advertorial because I think it's going to be more expensive than I think. It varies depending on the office, but it's about sort of 400 to 600 pounds. There are levels as well. So there are depending levels where you are. where you are and also different... So dif- so WeWork prides itself on having a ping pong table and, you know, other extra facilities that there are other share, shared working spaces. But it's per desk share. per month, which yeah. feels a lot more utility. Guys, we're, we're so up against it on time. Um, and for Martin in 11FS, have a drink. Um, uh, the next story, Jason, is one submitted to Fintech Insider News by Andrew O. Uh, this is in Finextra, and it says, UK Challenger Bank launches as prop tech market hots up. So uh, Redwood Bank, a new Challenger Bank, there's one every week, uh, has, um, has started providing mortgages to small businesses and professional landlords. Uh, it's, it was granted its banking licence four months ago. Okay, I get that. And now it's, it seems to have focused very much on a very specific niche. Oh, they so talk about property having... Tech, uh, yeah, property property tech. technology, there you go. Oh, so, I've never heard that before. <laughs> you, don't, you don't read our briefings, obviously. So, we'll take this offline. So we've been through this wave of Aldermore, Shawbrook. We spoke, I think, last week about Oak North, mm-hmm. how their lending portfolio had massively increased. And actually, interestingly, a lot of half of that increase was on uh, property uh, investment. So again, it sees, seems that there's this area that's underserved. And if half of, you know, half of uh, Oak North's property portfolio is there, then does actually getting exp- regional experts in that particular area, spreading them around and making a bank specifically about that, 
become an interesting uh, point. Now, the, the only thing I'd add, add before everyone jumps in is that this is also starting in a very particular region in Hertfordshire. It has a big investment by the, I think, the local council. So there's also a question of how this is being used to invigorate the economy with a banking license and then to expand from there. It's actually up north. It's Warrington, oh, which Warrington, is even sorry. more interesting because just to talk about the mortgage, the mortgage space and to give back to small businesses, we can do a full cycle here. The, the United Kingdom has a property problem. We don't have enough houses. People aren't building enough houses. The reason that they aren't building houses is because they can't get any money to buy land or a loan, to, a development loan to build the property or a development sales loan. There's like five different sorts of loans you need under the mortgage umbrella and i won't go into them because it's very dull but the idea of these plate these places is really interesting to me because the idea is talking about regenerating an area and using local expertise the idea of banks like this is to focus on those small guys or or hopefully smokers on those focus on those small guys who are going to build houses for local residents understanding local needs and they will have a space in them for a coffee shop and they'll have a space in them for a corner shop and it enables them to get that money they're using technology to be able to you know get that money out there faster which is what small businesses actually want so it's like small business property development back to that detroit story. yeah exactly so, so did you say that it was like a product for landlords smes and uh pro- yeah it's developers, essentially professional developers, developers. Okay, yeah. okay but not like someone trying to buy a house okay no, no. i'm awfully suspicious of that well the, the problem is that doing residential mortgages is, is very very complicated in the uk and doing I'm, I, I think it's a good idea, definitely. I think we need more innovation in the mortgage space, certainly in the property space, if I want to live in a house in the it next depends. 10 years. I think part of the question of is it good depends on whether you see the future as a rental future or a home-owning future. Because if I, if I can rent an affordable property in a place I want to live, is that winning versus actually taking on a mortgage which led us arguably to the last crisis and, and how that, that well, works? I think if the landlords are good... Absolutely. Look at Berlin and, you know, it's always Berlin, isn't it? You know, um, but that kind of, um, you know, owning your house and this kind of obsession in this country to own your own house and then buy a second home and all this bollocks, you know. Um, if, if the landlords are good, it will be a rental future, but I'm not sure if the landlords are good. Good question. Uh, next story up is one in Newswire Canada, submitted to Finting Insider News by Bob McLean. This says the Royal Bank of Canada is the first bank in Canada to offer clients personalized digital financial insights. Like, all right, so this headline is, is one that doesn't really tell you what's going on. Basically, they've updated their app and the app helps you manage your finances day to day with timely tips and advice. Like, I get that. You've got a busy life. You want to understand it. We, we haven't got our hands on this app yet in 11FS Pulse. We don't know whether it's good or bad. But generally, the concept of helping people manage their finances, Jason, that, that seems right. Well, you know, I'd almost rewrite the headline as, so we copied digits and acorns and added some PFM and we'll be releasing it soon. You've never worked in PR, have you, Jason? Like, you need to refine those skills, I think. But that's, and that's absolutely fine. What I keep coming back to is there's nothing wrong with taking the best of what's happening in the fintech space, especially those businesses which could probably be better features for banks and implementing them. You know, uh, we don't want to start from scratch. You really do want to look at how the best proposition in peer-to-peer or uh, PFM or uh, savings work and actually start building those into the pro- into your project. I think there's way too much focus on let's do innovation and nothing like, I don't know, rocket internet uh, who are much maligned but look completely across the, the world for the best propositions Steal and move those pride. into the market. Still with pride. So um, so I think there's something about about. It's a great idea, but this whole, like, we've come up with something brand new and we're going to build it. It's like, mm, that that doesn't quite sit with me. I think it's a load of bollocks, mate. <laughs> well said. Better, question, better questions. <laughs> Is one in a number of uh, outlets picked this up. We've got the Vice story here. It was in Munchies. I think it was covered by um, several others, CNBC. This was submitted to Fintech Insider News, of course, by Sharon. Uh, and this story is WhopperCoin. What a whopper this one is as well. Uh, so Burger King have, I believe in Russia, announced their own digital currency where if you buy enough burgers, you get offered this digital currency. And the joy here, of course, is 
this digital currency has been marketed as well digital currencies are forever increasing in value and by getting now by eating burgers you can get your hands on some of this digital currency which of course is a little bit misleading as as Karim pointed out on uh, our sister show blockchain insider which is in itunes right now so please go download <laughs> blockchain insider um, guys what do we think of this one is it just is this just PR? Double ESA with cheese. <laughs> really? Nice. I, I, Bitcoin I love, and fries. I, I love um, Sharon's comment on this one, and it probably sort of sums it up. It's like, I honestly just can't tell what's satire anymore. And, and that probably sums this one up. Because I, I actually read it just like it was a joke. Well, well look, I'm, I'm going to try and find the sense in this. Okay. Because on one hand, you've got, okay, cryptocurrency and the whole thing around that. But Bitcoin on the other hand, new, it's a loyalty scheme. You know, rather than... Uh, taking your card and getting the little stamps on it, someone's going to give you a cryptocurrency. And apparently, if you have 1,700 Whopper coins, you can save them all up and you can buy yourself a new a new burger. Can I only use them at Burger King, my Whopper coins? Apparently so. In Russia? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> Carry but, you on. Might, but you might say, well, how is this any different from Nectar Points? Because in the end... Or any loyalty schemes, points, air miles. Exactly, air yeah, miles. Next point is interoperable. You can go across... Well, around wow. a number of... Co- you know, around a coalition. Maybe this is where it starts. All I'm trying to say is that, that we've had something equivalent, some kind of loyalty point scheme that so Burger King if, just happened to have made as a cryptocurrency. So what if I could take my Whopper coins to Kraken.com or Coinbase.com and exchange them for Bitcoin or dollars and so on? And I think that's the idea is, like... They would probably stop you from doing that. I imagine they would, but I think Jason's point is, what does that future look like? If I get some Netflix minutes and I can exchange that for Spotify, or I can gift it and change dollars, and like, what? How does the world change if these types of things become easier to move around? What are the benefits to businesses, and what are the costs to businesses? So, so is there an exchange to this? Like, are these are these Whopper coins going to go up and down? Like, at one day, am I going to get like two Whoppers? Like, mm. the next day, I can have two Whoppers and. Let's just say details are sketchy, right. but the amount of burgers you get to your Whopper coin isn't a, a great return. I'll, I'll um, be honest, the, the best thing about this is seeing an American company doing innovation outside of America first. And, and also an American company has effectively announced that they've launched what looks like a security um, when the SEC has said that any securities issuance uh, that looks like the Dow may need to be regulated as if it is a security, therefore they they may, need, they may have accidentally got into hot water. Do you but think this was actually okayed in the US? I, I would be very surprised if that was the case. And speaking of fun stories, we've got an and finally up here. There's one in Finextra submitted by Andrew Earl. I just really like this headline. There's an ice cream van that's gone cone tactless. That's just brilliant. We need more ice cream vans going contactless because I, just, <laughs> I, I don't have 99 pence to buy a, a chocolate. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I would have to say that the headline is my favourite thing about this story as well. By far. Short, short of your little, like, stab at Mr. Whippy there and other ice cream vendors. Um, I'm just going to put it out there that I quite like the idea of getting people to use more contactless outside of particularly London in the UK. Um, my favourite one I'm going to tell the story and I'm going to tell it again was the guide dogs for the blind and the dogs with the contactless collar and if you wanted to pet the dog you had to put your card against oh, its collar wow. and that was brilliant wow. <laughs> it's brilliant because the charity gets some money and pets for pounds it may not be guide dogs for the blind I apologize if not but it's you know it's it's an interesting idea um, but so just <laughs> sorry sorry to get serious on this one but I know I know that we're sort of getting towards the end but has anybody watched the, the video that's on the in the article <laughs> Like you, you basically have to put an ATM on the side of your on your on your, your ice cream van. Like, it, why wouldn't it you sounds, just have an ISA? Yeah, I know. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, it's like that little thing you can just get that you can do any like. Well, so, no. so the driver of that van has got ninety nine problems, but a cone yeah. one. <laughs> Did, does Barclays not? By the way, does Barclays not have its own mobile point of sale device? A, a lot of banks now do. Um, this is Barclay card specifically, which is why I asked about Barclays. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So but is this is this a Barclay card ad? Is uh, are we yeah, it's are like we pushing Barclay Card here? For Basically, that's what it is. Uh, so they did pay wag. They got me. They got me with the headline. I, I don't think we are. I think we're pushing ice creams. I yeah. think that's what we're doing. <laughs> are you an ice cream pusher? Yeah. <laughs> As an ex Fleet Street sub editor, I think it's an appalling headline. <laughs> When, when, you, when you work in fintech, you take what you can get. <laughs> Honestly, like when I'm writing about, you know, yeah, 
There must I be, a bit, there must be a bit of headline by the end of this podcast. There must be one. <laughs> That's the last headline. I'm sorry, Monty. But if, <laughs> if you want to throw any more good headlines out there, where can people find out more about you and what it is you do? I have a little blog called uh, MOB Letters 76 Numerals Mob 76 Outlook.com. Kind of quite well trafficked. Um, I suppose that's about it, really. And what do you talk about on that blog? I just kind of put stories up. I try to shine lights on places that aren't usually publicised, with non-sector. If you go, go to that website, the the picture you're greeted with is Monty sitting with Steve Wozniak, yeah, just hanging sin, out with Steve Wozniak. Sin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As you do. Sarah, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can find my work on BI Intelligence and uh, you can find me on Twitter under at Sarah Kashansky. Uh, and is there a specific report you were mentioning there on well, the SME well, side of the, things or is that your big thing at the moment? That's coming soon. That'll be uh, FinTech for SMBs and how banks are fighting back. I'm going to come up with a better headline. I'm going to go and speak to the person at Finextra who wrote the code this one. Monty's going to help me with that. We like that. More reports from Sarah to come, I'm sure. And more FinTech Insider episodes to come. If you want to find out uh, what we didn't get to cover or if you want to submit stories, head over to fintechinsidernews.com and get involved in the discussion. Comment. Give us us interesting things to say on the podcast because I might be running out of interesting things to say. (laughs) I don't want to speak for anybody else. Uh, You can get involved. Uh, And as always, you can find Find us on Twitter at Fintech Insiders or on Facebook um, or on our Fintech Insider page. Uh, and if you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>